I'm Michael Levitin, and this is episode six of The Tell. Once when I was a kid, my dad said he was going to do a card trick and that to prepare, we had to organize a deck of cards by suit and number. So it took us a little while. We organized this deck of cards. And as soon as we finished, dad took the deck in his hands and tossed it in the air. And the cards went all over the room. And he pointed out how long it took us to organize the cards and how little time it took to disorganize them. And he said this was because the world naturally tends towards chaos. I love this. And I think because as a kid, I already felt that way, um, both in positive and negative ways. People try to tell kids that there's an order to the world, that good things happen to good people, that everything makes sense. And I I didn't believe any of that stuff. Um, So first thing was that I found that thrilling, that I loved chaos. I mean, too much chaos is terrifying, but there's a perfect amount of chaos out there that's just incredibly fun. (laughs) And I think I'm searching for that perfect amount of chaos all the time. I think it's why I love improvised storytelling instead of stories read from a page. I love the tangents. I love the strange thing that happens in your voice when you're disorganized. Uh, I love stories that go in all kinds of crazy directions that you can't predict at all. Uh, I love chaos. But then the terrifying chaos or the sad chaos also feels sort of comforting because it reassures me that the world really is the way I see it, that things aren't fair and they don't always make sense. So today we have stories from Annapurna Sri Ram and Himanshu Suri, otherwise known as Heems, and a live musical performance by Turner Cody. And I think this episode really does feel like those cards flying in the air. This is episode six of The Tell. So when I was um, 16, I was growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, and I was uh, pretty, I was a pretty benign teenager, but like most teenagers, I was sneaking out and going to parties and, you know, making out with boys, and um, I had MySpace, and I, I had a lot of, like, provocative things I was saying and posting on MySpace, which would maybe give the impression that I was like a lot worse than I really was as a 16-year-old. Uh, and so my parents found my MySpace. And, um, and, I, and I knew for myself, you know, I was a virgin. I, like, didn't snort drugs. I had my rules. Uh, but they really freaked out. And that, coupled with a lot of fighting, um, made them decide that they would send me away to a therapeutic boarding school, which is... <laughs> the obvious choice. Uh, So I I had a couple of pit stops along the way, and it was also, like, part of how they figured out what, you know, because there's no, it's not, like, common knowledge if you're a parent. Like, oh, yes, and your kid does this, they go here. So I was at, I was in juvie, I was in a psych ward, I was in a wilderness, like, six-week thing, and then eventually they're like, all right, you're going to go to this um, year-round therapeutic boarding school in Virginia, and I was in the wilderness in Georgia. So they picked me up, and we were driving to Virginia. So I had been gone at this point for about almost two months, you know, from this little journey. And so the whole car ride, I'm, like, vacillating between trying to prove to them that I'm a really good kid and I've solved all my problems and I'm all set to be home and I won't do anything ever again 
And also, like, to freaking out and, like, trying to jump out the window and, like, cussing them out and, like, what the fuck? You know, you're the worst people ever. So we, um, we get to this school, and it's got this old sort of manor house building, and it's, like, it's like almost like a golf course resort-looking place, um, which I later now refer to as my luxury incarceration. So... Uh, uh, these two girls greet me, and they're my, like, big sisters, or they're sort of going to show me around while my parents fill out paperwork. So all these people are coming up, and they're introducing themselves to me, and it's a year-round school, so kids kind of just kind of come whenever. they, You know, it's a rolling admissions. So the first thing I learn is that there's this thing called bans, which means you're banned from people, or you can be banned from things or habits, or I don't know, but mostly it's people. So as a new kid, you're banned from all of the other new kids, which in retrospect, I think is to prevent undergrounds from forming so new kids don't like band together and then run away. Like, I think this is like part of the tactic. So I was like, what? <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean I'm on band? Like, what? <laughs> like, it's a toy, and like, it's enforced. And all the kids who had been showing me around were like Stepford people. Like, they just seemed like dissociated. You know, I was like, you guys are all here and like doing this, and like, you seem compliant in this. And I was like, mom, you can't leave me here. Like, they're all kind of, I think they're crazy. Like, they're all crazy and they have bands. Like, they're ba on bands with people. And they're like, sorry, we have to do this. And it was really emotional. Uh, which I'm making light of because um, I don't want to get too dark yet. So, uh, so then, <laughs> so then you know we say bye and uh, they give me this rule book, which uh, the, there's these standards and they're like really ridiculous. Like everything, you know, you, the whole point is you got to be in standard and it's like ridiculous. Like everything you do, you're basically going to be out of standard. Like if your pants are too tight, if you've got pockets on your pants, if you cheat, you know, if you if you talk to, you know, if you break bands, if, and then if you know someone else is out of standard, you're out of standard. So I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. And, you know, you have to clean every morning. You have to clean all the fucking time and, like, get your clothes checked. It's like, you know, it's like living in the most fascist sort of society. So the first day we have school, and it's seemingly normal. You know, you have your classes. You slip right back into, like, whatever you, I had been doing in Nashville. And in class, you're like, okay, well, I can't talk to these people because they're new kids, so we're on bands with each other. And then even when I went to talk to someone else, they're like, bands. And I was like, you're not, you're not a new kid. Like, I, you know, I already learned who the new kids were. But then people can just have this, uh, you're banned for whatever reason. Like, if you're in trouble and you're on bands with the whole school or if you're in bands with the opposite sex or, you know, and you can't talk to them, you can't ask for a piece of paper. If you're like in a class discussion and they say something, you can't respond to it. Like you have to just act as if they, you didn't hear it. It's the most, and people follow it <laughs> too. Um, so then after school, I had my first group and we have three groups a week. So, so this kid had been pointed out or had been singled out in group. I guess this is near the New Year's, and, I, and he had like done something with a balloon where he had pretended to give the balloon head, and 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 he 
And everyone was angry at him. Like everyone was like yelling at him and talking about how disrespectful and like how awful it was. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, that's like not a big deal. And it's like funny. And he's, and then, and, and the thing in group is if you want to talk to someone, you have to get up. You can't sit next to them, so you have to get up. And so then all these people are like getting up and moving, and like you have to, everyone's constantly getting up. And like all these kids are just like yelling at this boy. And then and the staff are all like, yeah, like so they're totally condoning it. And then eventually the boy breaks down and like cries about being gay, and everyone's like rubbing his back. And then it's like, okay, it's over. So the point is, that's why the rules are held, <laughs> because you can request people for groups. And then you can rail them in group if they're out of standard. And then the way to get out of that is to have a breakdown and cry about something from your childhood. And then like everything's okay. You've done therapy work, you know, everything's great. So I was like, oh my God, this is the worst thing in the fucking world. And we do this three times a week. And like, and so every day that's a group day, you're like, it's a two hour group. You're like, oh my God, everyone is having like the biggest panic attacks of their life. Cause you're like, is it going to be me? Is it my day to get, you know, whatever. I don't know what I did, but maybe something. So then we have workshops and, and I go through our first workshop and they're all variations on the same theme, the workshops. And they're like two to five days long and you're like separated from the school in a trailer <laughs> out in the woods. Uh, so, you know, you, the first workshop, <clears throat> you start off by doing an honor list where you have to write down everything that you've done that's out of standard that no one knows about. And then the first, then, then we go in and we do this thing called a disclosure circle where we sit in a circle and the staff included and they play like Tracy Chapman and they have like the lights are low and they, and the staff start it. So the staff start crying and talking about all of their like worst things that have ever, like being molested, having an abortion, like all of these things. And then we have to go around and share our own disclosures. And then it's like, and then we do a second round and then people are like, un, you know, I don't even, and so I was in a situation where I didn't really have anything, but I was like trying to just make myself cry and like mumble something through like fake tears. Like I was like playing with myself and like, you know, like just trying to like, just, you know, because then they're like, there's something there. Like you share with, you know, so there's all this pressure to constantly like, have all these problems. So then we go into the group and this is what all the workshops are variations on this like theme. So then we did the first group, which was like your truth. And we, it's like, oh, let's talk about Michael. Like everyone, what is Michael's truth? And everyone's like, oh, you're so honorable and like powerful and you're such an honest man. And like, you're always so, ad like all these like great words. Like I was powerful and this other girl was free and, and this other was beautiful. And so then we're all like crying about how like awesome we are. And like, and this is also with our, all the new kids. So this is the first time we're ever able to talk to all the other new kids, because now we've formed a peer group and we do these workshops as a peer group. So then we come back and it's the night group and it's the lie. And we like sit in this circle and then there's older students that have come in for this group and other staff members. And this is like, all right, everybody, let's talk about so-and-so, what is their lie? And then the like worst shit comes out of these people. 
like, oh, you're a slimy rapist. <laughs> and like, you're a monster. And, you know, all, and, and then we're like, oh my God. And then they're like, you guys join in. What is, you know, and we don't even know each other because we've been on bands. So we're like, oh, I don't know. You seem like you try really hard. And they're like, no, no, no. It's worse than that. Don't sugarcoat it. So... So then we go through this horrible group, you know, where they're like, you're the cum dumpster, you're a, a drug addict monster, and you're uh, the girl at the party that everyone would fuck because she's easy, which is what I got. And like a desperate fake, you know, all these things. And so then, I, you know, you like literally just, you know, want to kill yourself. You don't. I mean, it's okay. We, no one did. But um, it's, it's a lot of, it's pretty traumatic. So then you know, that's how they play with, you know, they break you down. So then going back into school, uh, you know, you kind of move through this. You, you learn how to play it. I mean, you learn how to just, like, succumb to it. And, you know, when someone's getting railed in group, you join in because it's not you. Or when someone, you know, so you, everyone sort of had to buy into it in a certain way. And at a certain point, I was in suspension, which is what you do when you get in trouble. And like when you get, this is, when you get in trouble, it's like the variation of what you actually did is so small because the rules there are so intense. Um, and I, my, so I, I'm an actor and at the time I had been in a performing arts school before I had been sent here. So I was like, you know, yeah, I'm gonna be an actor, I guess, when I get out of this. If I get out, you know, and and everyone was like, uh, see, that's part of your game. That's part of your problem. Like, you're always trying to get attention and you're like so desperate for everyone to love you. So uh, it really, you know, confused me. And so my advisor, when I was in suspension, and when you're in suspension, you sit in a room from seven to 10 and you can only ask to go to the bathroom or get water and then you just do your homework or whatever. So she was like, okay, I have an idea. And, and she just made this up. This is not in like any therapy book or she didn't like, she just came up with this idea. You're gonna come out for the night. And they'd also at this point, I think at one point printed out my MySpace page. <laughs> and they'd been like, this is who you were. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, you know. Uh, so she was like, you're gonna come out for the night and you're gonna perform. Cause you wanna be an actor. So you're gonna perform like your old self. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. Uh, I don't really have a choice in this. So yeah, I guess I'll do that. I'll come out of suspension and like join this school. And, and she's like following me around and I'm sort of acting how I, you know, like it's, it's your little self-conscious. You're also like, I think I was 17, you know, so you're already like, you hate yourself anyway. So, so she's like following me around. She's like, no, 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 it's bigger, it's bigger. So I eventually have to like portray this like bizarre caricature that I guess was myself or as, you know, there's a lot of levels on this that even then I don't think I understood. So, um, and like, she's like egging me on the whole time, like bigger, bigger, crazier. And so I'm like being this big asshole and like, you know, stomping around and like singing, you know. So then at the end of the night, I sit down and I do this thing called a last light, which they do every night where you share like a song or a poem or like whatever, a memory. And so I have to tell the school like, hey guys, tonight I had to do this assignment. You may have noticed I was behaving kind of strangely, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then she says, and if anyone was affected by Annapurna, you can take her to group. And I was like, what? <laughs> uh, no, I just explained that I... It was an assignment that I had to do. So the next day, um, 
like so many people took me to group. <laughs> and I had, it was a massive group. And my friend who was in that group with me described it as like a National Geographic video where there's like a gazelle getting attacked by like a ton of lions where like everyone was offended by my action. The staff were like reaming me for bringing that shit on campus and like ruining the safety of the school. And the whole time I'm like, it was an assignment. I didn't understand. I thought I was supposed to do it because she said I had to do it. So I'm already in suspension. <laughs> so, so it was, um, it was, it was pretty awful. I mean, it was probably one of the times when it was, you know, you really feel like everything I'm doing is under such a strong microscope that I don't even know, like, I don't even understand how to exist. Um, and so I think from that point on, I just had to fly under the radar. I just had to get out. And I had a one friend who, she had been in a group once. Uh, we were in the same team. And uh, she had talked about how she had been raped. And then this boy in the group had talked about how he had raped a girl at a party. And then the staff orchestrated this like bizarre apology forgiveness between the two of them. So later on, Allie, Allison, had been in a group and she had like made out with some guy and she was getting reamed. And she had the thought, which I never had, she had the thought of like, I don't need this, I don't need to take this. And she left the group. And then she was gone. She was like back in the wilderness and we never saw her again. So there was, so complying was like very much what you had to do. You had to just like <laughs> take it essentially. And um, I, I had been on like bands with boys for a lot of the time because of my like flirtation or I had been, you know, whatever they could do to like humiliate or whatever. So then eventually um, I graduated on time and I guess a large part of my life has been processing this. And there was a period, I guess, of like the next four years, we had like a Facebook alumni group. And there were like four or five kids who died of like an overdose or whatever. And so then we, as the alumni, became really divided, where half of us were like, let's sue the fucking school, let's bring them down, like, this is, this is not okay. And then the other half were like, no, that school saved me. If I didn't go there, I would be a prostitute or whatever, like, they fed them. So um, I, then I didn't really think about it, and I was, you know, working, I was out of school, and, and it was only recently, I guess about a year ago, that I thought about it again, and I was like, I want to contact those staff people, and I want to say something like that was really fucked up or that was like you know I'm an actor now and like fuck you or whatever like teenage sort of like residual resentment I had and I found out the school had been shut down it was shut down last January <laughs> but also I found this like really strange website that someone had made where they posted all of the staff members and all of their accreditations or the lack thereof and I was even able to like write into them and I'm like, oh, you're missing this person. <laughs> like, you haven't listed this person, you know, or, or whoever. But um, it doesn't actually really matter if I ever contact them because even like telling this story, there's still, like I still even wonder, like will the trauma of it ever actually dissipate? I don't know, I guess that's sort of the final question. Thank you.
so there's three uh, interesting, I guess, places in my old neighborhood in Queens. This is a neighborhood called Bellrose or Glen Oaks, or it's kind of near Floral Park. There's the North Shore Country Club and Towers, which are like these huge apartment buildings that stand out because there's no apartment buildings out. This is like really far east in Queens, like right where the border of Nassau County and Queens is. And there's the Creedmoor Psychiatric Center, which is like the other huge building, which is just this like sand-colored gigantic box um, where I think maybe I'm making this up or maybe this is true. They house the the son of Sam murderer at some point. And uh, so it's this, uh, yeah, it's a psychiatric center. And there was also a children's psychiatric center uh, next door where we would uh, go and drink because it was out of use since the 80s. So we would jump a fence and go drink beer in, in, in a psychiatric center for children, <laughs> which is just what you do in Queens growing up. And... Uh, yeah, we never really like went near the country club and like took a golf cart or anything, but we would ha drink heavily at the children's psychiatric center. And the other, the only thing I guess interesting about these three places is they're not an Indian grocery store, which is what everything else in the neighborhood is. So there's the country club, the psychiatric center, and there's a farm. It's it's uh, the Queens County Farm and Museum, which I think is like the only f like old school farm in the five boroughs. So I grew up near a farm in Queens, New York, and uh, yeah, the neighborhood was mostly uh, Indian. Uh, and there were a lot of, like, I guess it was it Italian-Jewish, uh, some old German families, uh, kind of like the mix you get in New York, but for, like, a suburban neighborhood, it was heavily Indian. Uh, like, all my cousins, all, like, 17 of my cousins ended up in the same neighborhood. They all came from Flushing out to, like, this part of Queens. And uh, I guess my story wasn't so much about Queens as it was being in, like, the softest, worst gang in the history of New York, which is just, like, it was uh, so... Uh, we would like make up gang names and crew names is what you do growing up here, I guess. And so there was Punjabi Delhi owners, there was uh, Pakistani gas station owners. My, my man Ali would just yell PGSO, which was Pakistani gas station owners. There was uh, the MTA, which was the Muslim Terrorist Association, which was, this is like 1998 or so, 1997. That one got shut down quick. There was a website. And like, we were all like, like nerdy Indian kids. So there was obviously a website that my friend Muhammad had made for the Muslim Terrorist Association. And what was probably worse was like, uh, we were like, at this time we were just worried about like copyright infringement because we stole the MTA's logo. We weren't like, worried about like the NSA or anything like that. So yeah, we had to shut down that one. And um, so uh, then like out of this neighborhood, like we all ended up going to schools like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. Uh, and so eventually emerged a crew we had called Third World. Now the funniest thing about Third World fam, as we were called, as our t-shirts said, with um, <laughs> The funniest thing about Third World Fam is that the name Third World came from a website one of, uh, one of the founding members, uh, one of the dog fathers had made. Uh, and uh, the website was like mp3world.com. And so the three world became Third World. But I mean, the, the, the gang name came from like a, a mp3 nerd website one of us made. We all went to specialized science high schools. 
none of us sold drugs. Maybe I sold some drugs. Maybe like, <laughs> maybe a, like a couple of us did, but it wasn't like, you know, we were like a gang. There was some fighting and stuff. Uh, there was like, oh man, one time in the park, this guy, we had brought him from like a, a more interesting neighborhood in Queens to, to, I guess a friend had brought them to, to like intimidate some other kids. And I just remember him like violently slamming a wiffle ball bat on, on the floor. And I was like, that's not even that threatening. It's a fucking <laughs> wiffle. It's like a plastic little bat. But um, yeah, there was stuff like that. So uh, <laughs> third world. Third world. So, oh yeah, there wasn't a lot of crime or anything. We, oh, we would steal stuff. Oh, stealing was fun. Uh, we would steal graphing calculators and, <laughs> and sell them for money. And, and like Bronx Science was the bad school, the Bronx High School of Science, because uh, some of our friends from there were just a little rougher. So one time, uh, compared to Stuyvesant, uh, so, these are like the nerdiest math and science schools you can imagine. And uh, one time our friend Mohammed came uh, during like a school dance at Stuyvesant and stole like 30 North Face jackets, which were like, that was, that was the hot commodity back in the day. I'm talking like 2001, 2000. That's a lot of money. He stole mad North Face jackets. And then like the, like the white kids were upset and like I smoked weed with the white kids. So it was like a real tense political, I had to like play diplomat and stuff. I had to like broker back 10 of the jackets and stuff. And, and it, was, it was a tense situation. I've, I've always had to broker these different things. I ran for like a vice president and I won because I had been doing drugs with each racial group in the high school. And so like you have to win like the Korean and Chinese vote and I would like go to club exit and do like ketamine and ecstasy with them. The white kids like had the best weed so I had to hang out with them. The Indian kids I took the train back with and they had a lot of alcoholism. So, so, so that's how I had kind of secured the vote. So, um, so at one point basically like 9-11 uh, happened and we were in school and we were like, fuck, what's, you know, this is crazy. We were told by the principal that like the towers wouldn't fall. And so the safest place was to stay in the school and then the fucking tower fell. And so we got evacuated, like uh, 3,200 students got evacuated up the West Side Highway. And our group of friends was like, yeah, third world was like Guyanese kids, uh, Pakistani kids, Indian kids, Hindu, Christian, white kids, Jewish kids, mostly those South Asian and Indo-Caribbean kids. So on that day, we got evacuated up the West Side Highway. We kind of banded together, walked up to as far as we could until the trains were running and came back to Queens. And I guess like when we were with a girl who was wearing a hijab, and someone across the street, you know, had, like on that day was just like, go back where you came from. And we were like, we're trying to go back to Queens. <laughs> like, really? And like, you're 30 years old. Why are you bothering this 15 year old girl? That's just not even like, what? So the next day, again, like we're in the neighborhood and there's like a forest in this part of Queens as well. There's like up past these like this like apartment complex thing had some tennis courts and there was like a forest up there where you would go and smoke weed. So like there were these really dirty couches that I probably wouldn't sit on now. And like, uh, so we sat around and we smoked like a blunt 
a Dutch master, if I recall correctly. A couple Dutch masters. And we were like, fuck, man, this is crazy. Half of like the kids were named Muhammad or Ali, and we're like, this is, this is gonna be very different for us. Uh, so, yeah, after that, we went to a different high school for a month. We went to Brooklyn Tech while our school was used as a triage center. And, yeah, like out of all of that, though, uh, one of the kids from the neighborhood ended up becoming like a community organizer, running for city council in our neighborhood and getting endorsed by the New York Times. And I basically like uh, I had, you know, worked on his campaign. We had worked on a redistricting campaign in Queens in 2012, which led to them um, changing the borders for Richmond Hill and South Ozone Park. So like out of this weird neighborhood with the psychiatric center and the country club and everything else is an Indian store. Like, uh, oh, the other thing I forgot to say was third world would play football against whites of the world, which was like, whites of the world were like our white friends. And so they were wow, whites of the world. And we were third world. There was a guy in wow whose name was Vito Chacha. We called him Vito Chacha. Oh man, uh, I have like a vivid memory of like a 14th birthday party where like uh, our friend Mike changed the music to rock, which none of us had re ever heard before. Or no, we didn't really listen to it. And he, you know, we were drinking, we were like 14, yeah. And he started like moshing against all the walls while blasting Buddy Holly by Weezer. And it was kind of a surreal like thing because like, I. For one, I'd never seen a white person in my house before, so that was like really weird. And for two, I was just like, what is this rock music? Like, relax, man. And then somebody hid a bottle of rum in my dry cleaner, and then uh, Muhammad had sold some kid at that party some oregano instead of weed. And then like, I had to broker that situation as well too. This is like a friend from a different neighborhood. So, yeah, I know that the football's out of the way. So yeah, we grew up in that weird neighborhood and we stopped playing football because slowly like people started drinking more and every time they would score a touchdown, they would like have a beer and then they just stopped scoring touchdowns and kept drinking. And so just like the need to meet out of the sports thing just slowly became like neighborhood bullshit, like drinking in parks and stuff. And, um, but yeah, so uh, you know, we try to give back to the community too. You've got 42 cents on the dollar I've got a stack of bills to choke the crew I am putting one foot in front of the other Where I'm going, that's what you've got to do A guardian angel tapped me on the shoulder and I rode her wings across the avenue And I can't even say how much I owe her For she was not a second overdue And I don't know when I'll be returning Though I'm going where many have been before Where everybody's got a burden 
and everybody knows the score. And the rain falls straighter than an arrow It falls upon the dying and the dead And a graveyard man is driving a wheelbarrow And the whole damn town is painted red And I got a letter from my grandpa came to me from the way beyond And it told me if you look past the ramparts That you will see the new dawn But I don't know when I'll be returning Though I'm going where many have been before Everybody knows the score No, I don't know when I'll be returning I might be gone a lifetime or more Where everybody's got a burden And everybody knows the score Thank you. You just heard the great Turner Cody performing his song, The Score. Uh, before that, you heard a story from Annapurna Sri Ram. Uh, who's an actress and is actually appearing in a play by one of my favorite playwrights and characters, Wallace Shawn, one of my heroes. And I'm incredibly excited about this. I'm seeing it tomorrow <laughs> and I'm losing my mind. Uh, so that was Annapurna Sri Ram. Uh, and then you heard a story from Himanshu Suri, also known as Hemes, an incredible rapper. Uh, he, he has a bunch of different projects, Das Racist uh, and Sweatshop Boys. He's the greatest um, and uh, so I want to thank, as always, Gabriel Galvin and Natalia Schween for co-producing the Tell Live series and the podcast. The next installment of the live series is on Monday, February 27th at the Jane Hotel Ballroom. If you want to go, you can find out more about that at thetellstories.com. And uh, below me right now, you are hearing one of our 
versions of the Tell theme song written by a fool. This one features Chris Egan on drums, Ian Underwood on bass, and John Coward on keyboard. And you're going to hear in a moment, Zana is going to sing it. We're going to have different singers from now on, not just me <laughs> after this point. Uh, so Zana Van Forsten Bosch is going to sing, written by a fool. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening. This was episode six of The Tell. It's brilliant color.